Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for indeed being good. And we praise and thank you that your love indeed endures today and always. And thank you, Father, for, for being a God whose, whose face is so light, whose very face is so light that the light from your face actually helps us find our way, no matter how dark life can get. Oh, what an amazing God you are. And it's our privilege, Father, to love you and to obey you and to know you. Father, I ask that you shine your light today on your word as we turn to it and look for the kind of comfort and sanctuary and protection and guidance for living that only you can give. We love you, and it's in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. We are back in Acts. And if you've been here at all with us, you know that we are in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. We're in the middle of the second journey, and we're at the beginning of its second and final phase. Thus far, Paul and Silas and then Timothy, they've largely strengthened the churches that Paul previously helped establish. And this morning, we get on a boat with Paul. And we set sail, really, to phase two of Second Missionary Journey. And this is a big moment in the history of the church. Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they're about to take the gospel to another continent, even. New territory for new churches. And if you've been with us, then you recall that Paul and Silas began this journey in Antioch, traveling west and north. Luke, our author of Acts, highlights the stop in Lystra where Timothy joins Paul and Silas. And then the text rather quickly takes these three men's men hundreds of miles further to Troas where most scholars agree that, that Luke joined in. And you remember from last time that in Troas, that's where Paul had that vision, remember? Of a man of Macedonia pleading that Paul would come to Macedonia and help us, he says. And that's where we'll pick up the story again this morning with Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke in Macedonia, specifically in a city called Philippi. I'll begin reading Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 11. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Now, if you're a first century reader, or if even you're a historian today, you hear Philippi and you hear Macedonia, and immediately, especially in Luke's original audience of Theophilus, who he's writing the letter to, or of the early church, you hear Philippi, you hear Macedonia, you think one name and one name only, Alexander the Great. This is where the author, if not the greatest missionary that Greek culture and way of life has ever known, was born and came from. And it's interesting, isn't it? Fascinating how God takes aim at, as soon as it gets on the very continent, God wants the first new church established in this second phase of Paul's second missionary journey 
right in the heart of where all of this Greek culture came from in the first place. Now, before we continue reading the story of Paul and company in Philippi, I'd like for you to keep in mind one thing as we read. Take a look at how Luke gives us so much detail compared to a very short stay in Philippi. I mean, they're only there, as we've read, for several days. And yet, even though they're there for such a short time, we get a very dramatic story, a very lengthy story for Luke especially, and we get a dramatic story in three parts. Many biblical commentators point out that, that often, at least, when biblical writers give us stories in three parts, they do so intentionally to highlight something particularly important. How it works is, is, is two of the three parts are similar to each other, and one part is very, very different. The two similar parts are usually the first part and the last part, and then the different part is inserted, or to use the theological word, is intercalated. Let's stick with inserted. The different part is inserted in the middle. And what the author is doing intentionally is he's writing his story using that three-part structure on purpose. You see what I mean? To, to draw the reader's attention by its very structure to just how different that middle part is to the first and the last parts. Does that make sense? No, your eyes aren't glazing over yet. Now, it, it maybe sounds a bit confusing, but I think it will become clearer for us as we see that very thing happening in how Luke tells the story of what happens in Philippi. Before we get back there, let me give you three parts to the, let, let me give you the three parts to the story before we read it. The story, one way to look at it at least, the story is about three different families or households in Philippi. The first part of the story is Lydia and her household. The second part is about a slave girl with a demonic spirit and her household. And the last part is about a Roman jailer and his household. And if you've been keeping score with me so far, I'm suggesting to you this morning that Luke is trying to highlight for us the similarities between the Lydia part and the Roman jailer part and trying to highlight the differences in the slave girl portion of the story. Okay, It's usually at this point that uh, someone um, in my Bible class at Front Range Christian, some brave student soul, raises her hand and asks, Mr. Lanning, is this going to be on the test? <laughs> there's no test. And it's yeah, there's one of them sitting right there who would ask that of me. <laughs> there's not going to be a test. It's really not as complicated as it might seem, but, but let's see how it works as we read the story, okay? Let's pick it up at verse 16. This is part one of the story, of the three-part story. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Probably only women there because there weren't enough Jewish men. You needed ten Jewish men, a minion, to form a synagogue. Every other city, Paul's go to the, Paul goes to a synagogue. Apparently in Philippi, there isn't one. This matches with history who te that tells us that Philippi is a retirement place for Roman legionnaires. 
History also tells us, not coincidentally, that there are not a lot of Jews there. Go figure, Roman legionaries and Jews don't exactly get along and hug each other very often. So, staunch Roman city. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home, Luke writes. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Interesting, she needs to persuade them. I wonder why they needed persuading. We'll look at that in a bit. Here comes part two of the three-part story. Verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her, own, for, for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled, the, uh, the Greek uh, so annoyed, right? Someone's constantly shouting that you are the servants of... You know, while you're trying to teach, it gets annoying. He turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews. You feel the prejudice? These men are Jews. And they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in, of course. I've often joked that these New Testament crowds, they need to get a life. I mean, every time that, you know, it's like these crowds are sitting around on their front porch. Boy, what a boring day. Oh, look, here comes like some mob. Let's join in. What are they doing? I don't know, but let's join in. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, part three. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We're all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling. Or as Craig said, tremoring. Rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. 
He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They should be. What they did was actually, um, uh, the death penalty was appropriate for doing that to a Roman citizen. So they came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. This is the very Word of God. Amen? Amen. You see, as we are reading, how, how the first and the last part of the stories are similar and how they're different from the one in the middle. I'm going to suggest that we use a particular word to sort of help us compare and contrast these parts of the story. And the word I'm suggesting this morning is hospitality. In short, the parts about Lydia and the Roman jailer show us what God's household of hospitality looks like in life. And the middle part about the slave girl most certainly does not. Before we compare those three parts of the story in greater detail, let's camp a little bit on this word, this concept of hospitality. What's hospitality? One of my favorite stories about hospitality was told to me once by a Catholic priest. He tells a story about a nun. And he tells, here's the story he told me. A nun is driving about on a dark and stormy night and gets hopelessly lost. Okay, guys, no wisecracks about women drivers, okay? That's not the point. Anyway, I'm just kidding. As luck would have it, the nun drives right by a monastery. And so she stops and asks for shelter. The brothers, being good Franciscans, offer their best hospitality and invite her to join them for dinner, which is just being put on the table. She sits down and enjoys the best fish and chips she's ever had. So after dinner, she goes into the kitchen to thank the chefs, and she's met by two brothers who introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Brother Michael. I'm Brother Charles. Nice to meet you, she replies. I just want to thank you for a wonderful dinner. The fish and the chips were the best I've ever tasted. I, I'm curious. Who cooked what? Brother Charles replied, Well, I'm the fish fryer. F-R-I-A-R, for those of you still trying to keep up. And of course, who can tell me what the other brother Michael says? He's the, the chipmunk. It's teacher humor. It's so bad, it's good. You'll get used to it. What's hospitality? Let's start with the word itself. The word hospitality, I found this fascinating this week. The word hospitality comes from the Latin word hospice, 
which comes from the word hostis, it comes from a word which originally meant stranger. And not only that, the word was originally used to describe an enemy, a, a hostile stranger. Curious that a word hospitality would come from hostile stranger. Ultimately, though, then, hospitality came to mean, from its roots, turning a hostile stranger into a friend. Isn't that cool? Hospitality, it includes kindness, but there's more. It includes helping people, but there's more. That, that word hospitality itself carries with it a, a purpose, an intent for the kindness and the help. Hospitality is turning a stranger into a friend. Now, this concept of hospitality was one of the most important practices in biblical times across all Eastern cultures. It meant that if a stranger came knocking at your tent door and you took him in, you were obligated you know, not only to offer fish and chips or whatever food and drink you had, but you were also obligated in the act of taking him or her in, you were obligated for that stranger's safety and well-being. And so once the stranger was within your gates, to use a biblical phrase, if their enemies came after them, you were obligated to give your life, if necessary, to protect and defend that stranger. And you would do so gladly. And so hospitality means offering strangers comfort, sanctuary. I love that word sanctuary. Protection, safety. Comfort, sanctuary, and guidance for life's journey. And in so doing, turning a stranger into a friend, into family, if you will, if you will. That's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. Offer strangers comfort, sanctuary, and guidance. Treat them as we would our own family. It's a huge part of what being a disciple of Jesus is all about. Now, that kind of hospitality, would you agree, doesn't exactly resonate or hit four square with our culture, does it? Give our lives, literally give our lives for complete strangers? Or does our notion of hospitality feel more like one definition for hospitality I came across this week? Hospitality is the knack for making others feel at home even when you wish they were. Right? We get a little honest, amen? Or how about this one from Benjamin Franklin? Does this one catch maybe what our culture, you know, if we're honest, how we kind of feel about hospitality? Franklin once said, fish and visitors smell in three days. In part one of our passage this morning, we see Paul offer hospitality to Lydia and her household. He gives her words of comfort and guidance for living life by sharing the gospel with her. And look how Lydia responds. She insists that Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke come stay at her house. And now you know, perhaps, this was no small gesture in the first century, right? 
When Lydia invites these men into her home, she is telling them she'll gladly give her life to protect them. She's offering them sanctuary. My opinion, it's probably why Paul and his three disciples needed to be persuaded to accept that invitation. I mean, their hesitancy to accept Lydia's invitation, maybe it was because they of all people, right? They knew from this past mission experience, chances were pretty good, if not guaranteed. Sooner or later, someone's going to come after them and try to hurt them. Maybe they were reluctant to accept Lydia's amazing offer of hospitality because they didn't want to put Lydia and her household in harm's way. So we see biblical hospitality in action in part one of our story this morning from Paul and especially, or equally at least, from Lydia. And then comes part two. And the contrast is astounding. It's about as stark and abrupt as Luke could possibly make it. Right out of his mouth in part two, Luke immediately tells us of a slave girl oppressed or possessed with a demonic spirit. My friends, there is perhaps no greater opposite of hospitality than demonic possession. An evil spirit invades and and, and takes over the very being of a young girl. Did you know that that one of the very first uses of the word ventriloquist was to describe someone possessed by a demonic spirit? Did you know that? It's true. The demon pushes aside the will of the person and, and turns them into a puppet, into a possession rather than a person. It, it makes the person mouth its words rather than her own. And in our story this morning, it gets progressively worse. It gets even worse. You say, what could be worse than that? Well, the slave girl is not only exploited by the evil spirit, she's exploited by her own community and her own household. Why? To satisfy their own selfish desire to somehow know something that's going to happen in the future and to satisfy their own greed for money. Exploitation, exploiting or using people for your own gain is the exact opposite of biblical hospitality. Hospitality is giving of ourselves to others for their benefit and not ours. And the exploitation of that slave girl is painfully emphasized by Luke in his story. Paul stands alone in the middle of that middle second part in offering true hospitality to the slave girl. He releases her from that evil spirit. And look at the immediate reaction of the girl's household and soon after the community or that crowd that needs to give a life, get a life. Look at their immediate reaction. They're hopping mad because they can't use her anymore for fortune telling or for money. Does anybody care about her? They're willing to sacrifice this girl for their selfish purposes. Doesn't anyone care that the girl is finally free? Doesn't anyone care that God has made her whole again? Not even a whisper of her. How absolutely horrific. She was so alone. Over the years, it's kind of a hobby of mine. I've been making a list 
a list of questions that I'd like to ask different people in the Bible when I meet them in heaven. Kind of fun? This for me. Now, I'm still working on how I'll bring that list with me to heaven, so if you have any ideas, let me know. I have to try to arrange one of those chariot rides that Elijah... There's only two people, though, so chances aren't good. I'm going to get one. One of those questions comes from this passage this morning. I want to ask Luke or Paul or Silas or Timothy, what happened to the slave girl? Aren't you curious? Here's the answer I'm expecting. Here's the answer that wouldn't surprise me at all. She was so overwhelmed by Paul's hospitality. She was so blown away that a complete stranger that she sort of heard herself that wasn't herself heckling, she's so blown away that this complete stranger cared about her when everyone else had only used and abused her. She was so completely undone by God's amazing grace that she accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior and for the rest of her life went around singing her song about what God had done for her that day in Philippi. Can you imagine? Can you almost see the look in her eyes? When for the first time in years, after the Spirit left her, for the first time in years perhaps, she, she could see. Free from the perpetual violation of an evil spirit. She must have cried. She must have looked at Paul in wonder and amazement and appreciation and love. Your God, this Jesus Christ saved me. Thank you. Seems likely to me anyway. Luke's focus, though, is apparently elsewhere. He doesn't tell us for sure. But that's a question I'd like to ask him. And the striking opposite of hospitality continues in part two of the story. Paul and Silas are literally dragged into the marketplace. In front of everyone, they're stripped and severely beaten and whipped, all without a trial. That is not hospitable treatment. They're then thrown into prison and their feet are fashioned in the stocks. And historians tell us this type of stock were themselves instrument of torture. The prisoners' legs in this type of stock were spread in such an awkward and excruciating angle that it would cause intense pain. Tortured. Again, a striking contrast to the hospitality of Paul and Lydia in part one. And then part three of our story brings us back to biblical hospitality. The earthquakes and prison doors fly open and chains come loose. And Paul and Silas could easily have escaped. In fact, the Roman jailer thought they did, but they didn't. Why not? Maybe you're like me. If I'm in that jail and that earthquakes, and boom, I'm out of there as quickly as I can manage. <laughs> now, maybe they stay because they want to make a public point with the magistrates. We read about that at the end of the story. But I'm wondering if in addition to that, at least, part of the reason they stayed is because they knew, everyone knew, what happened to Roman guards who let prisoners escape. They knew. The penalty was death. And so I wonder if Paul and Silas, and somehow apparently convincing all the other prisoners too, I wonder if Paul and Silas show hospitality to a complete stranger 
even to the one who chained them up. Don't do it! They shout to the guard about to kill himself, about to kill himself to to spare his family the shame of a formal public execution. Don't do it! We're still here! And once again, even, even the hardened Marine is reduced to tears and trembling by the hospitality of his prisoners. He's got to be thinking, doesn't, are you kidding me? Why do they care? Why do they care? And the jailer is completely undone by God's amazing grace. And his immediate reaction, when blown away by hospitality, is to ask, trembling, what must I do to be saved? And suddenly Luke tells us the jailer's entire household just sort of pops in. Did you notice that? They just sort of show up. It's like they appear out of nowhere. And then his household, where are they? Under the stool? We're not sure whether the jailer went and got his family. Maybe they came running because of the earthquake. They wanted to make sure dad or brother was okay. But they're there. And the jailer is so full of joy, he washes the fresh cuts on the backs of Paul and Silas. In his household, he invites them to his house at least eventually, and they give him something to eat. Who knows? Maybe they even had the cook's fish fryer and chipmunk. But one story, three parts, and one emphasis at least. Bringing the kingdom of God in Jesus' name to a world desperate for it drips with, is saturated with, necessarily includes hospitality. We witness Jesus by bringing comfort, sanctuary, and guidance to strangers. The world experiences Jesus in us when we gladly volunteer for no reason other than love to lay down our lives for even strangers, even enemies, Jesus says, that we meet along the way. And the Bible nearly bursts with this message of hospitality. It's way more than Acts 16. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the one everyone considered a dirty, rotten, disgusting stranger, the Samaritan, helps another stranger who's dying. And God Himself takes hospitality to great heights when He says in Hebrews 13, Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. And as high as that is with the angel, God takes it even higher. He takes it to the limit when God says through Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison, God says, and you came to visit me. And the people in the parable say, when, when, when could we possibly have done that? And our big, amazing God actually says, here's the truth of it, God Almighty Himself says, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did and you do for me. Wow! What an amazing God we serve. Oh, how I long! To hear God say those words of me. How I long for God to say those words of you and us at West Bowles Community Church. And if that's your longing too, next time you're having coffee in the gathering place, look for the stranger. 
and offer comfort, sanctuary, and guidance. Three varieties of donuts, I think. The next time you see the stranger come through those doors, offer them your seat. Offer them a seat next to you. Welcome them. Invite them. Be nice to them. Make them feel at home. In our youth ministry, we spend a lot of time and money and people and volunteers going on trips with kids and having fun together and getting to know and to love and to trust, watching them getting to know and to love and to trust each other and our youth leaders and volunteers while studying God's Word on the way. That's biblical hospitality. Kids being blown away that such love and attention and resources are being poured out on them and asking nothing in return. Being poured out on them by people who at first at least are complete strangers. That gets to a kid. That gets to an adult. And because of it, our church is full of stories of kids who, like Lydia, like the Roman jailer, and I bet like the slave girl too, are completely undone by God's amazing grace shown through our hospitality. And who become, who because of our hospitality, come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior too. Many of you here this morning, that's your story, isn't it? I know, because you've told me. You were hospitalized into the kingdom of God. That doesn't sound quite right, but you know what I mean. Many of you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, not only because the Bible makes the most sense, it does, but also because somebody loved on you. They were hospitable to you in a way that tore away your defenses and allowed God to grab hold of you in a way you never thought possible. We can so easily make evangelism and Christianity and discipleship and sharing our faith so complicated sometimes. You want to win someone for Christ? Then make a stranger a friend by offering them hospitality in Jesus' name. And watch what God does. Reminds me of a quote by one of my favorite authors. This author seems to have written the most quotes of anyone. His name is Anonymous. Have you heard of him or her? As a kid, I used to think that. Who's this anonymous guy? He's like got all these quotes. Well, anonymous wants to find the word stranger this way. I love this. A stranger is just a friend I don't know yet. Okay, anonymous gets a big, fat, gold, biblical star. Amen. Turn a stranger into a friend. And you take them through your friendship right to Jesus, the ultimate friend. And through your hospitality, you give someone every reason in the world to respond to God's call and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior too. You take away all sorts of barriers to their responding to Jesus simply through love and hospitality. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says to John, 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 tell the churches this. Tell them this. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And if you invite Jesus in, 
What does that mean? You'd lay down your life for him. And if he comes in, Jesus adds, and he will eat with me too. He almost becomes the host. What does that mean Jesus will do for us? Something he's already done. (laughs) Lay down his life for us. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, it falls to us to do everything we can to help those who don't yet know Jesus, who've not yet opened their door to him. It falls to us to do everything we can to help clear the way for Jesus' voice, to help them hear the voice. And when we are hospitable to people, our hospitality helps quiet all that white noise of a fallen, sinful, chaotic world that rings in the ears of lost sheep. Comfort, sanctuary, and guidance helps the lost sheep find a quiet moment at least. And in that peace, they can far more easily hear the voice of Jesus calling them as He stands at their door and knocks. So let's live lives of hospitality, church of God. Let's learn to see strangers as friends you don't know yet. Offer hospitality at every turn, like the Apostle Paul and like Jesus. And may people find you. May they find me. May they find all of us at West Bulls Community Church a place of comfort a place of sanctuary, a place of guidance for living, a place of hospitality. And may our hospitality, so help us God, may our hospitality that we wholeheartedly offer to others in Jesus' name, lead them to Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for sending the one who was the walking, breathing, and then suffering and dying definition of what it means to be hospitable. Thank you for sending Jesus to show us the way. Father, I ask that you give us Give us that ability. Give us that strength to be so other-focused that when we see someone we don't know, our immediate thought is, oh, look, there's a new friend to make in Jesus' name. And in so doing, Father, may your kingdom grow person by person through our love and our hospitality to strangers. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and the example of his life and witness that can challenge us and encourage us today. Help us to be your hospitality. We love you and ask all of this in the amazing name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day and a great week.